I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. Part of my identity, as you probably know, is that I am a remarried widow. My first husband, Aaron, died in November of 2014, and if you are sick of hearing me talk about this, imagine how sick I am of knowing it and living it and having that be a real part of my life. Fall is difficult for me. It brings up all of those experiences of loss. I feel it deeply in my bones, but there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about Aaron, where I don't miss him, where I don't say his name out loud. And I have that life that I miss, and I have a life I love. I have a husband, a current husband. His name is Matthew, who I love. And having those two parts of my life, Having those two big, big loves in my life has been hard for me to reconcile, and it's been really hard for other people to reconcile. I wrote a whole book called No Happy Endings about this, about what feels like this dichotomy, even though to me, they are two strands to the same thread. This is all life. It's all included. But I understand why people are interested in it as a topic, why people are confused about it as a topic, why it sort of challenges some people's ideas of what love is or could be and what it means to have uh, several loves in your life or a big love or two big loves. It's just very, very complicated. And it's one of those things that I, I hate to say it, but it's almost as though you can't get it unless you are forced to get it. And today's guest is one of those people who just kind of gets it. This is a conversation I had last year with a former bachelorette contestant. That is not a sentence I ever thought I would say because I'm not a citizen of or a constituent of Bachelor Nation at all. I'm just not. Of all the TV I watch, that is just not a franchise that has sucked me in. But this contestant is named Michael Alio. I always want to say Aoli but that's not correct. And I'd posted this conversation initially over on TTFA Premium. Shameless plug for that. It's a way to financially support our show. You can get ad-free episodes at the lowest level, at the mid-level, bonus episodes like this, or at the highest level, bonus episodes, and da, 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 mail. <laughs> and trust me, I'm a good mail sender. I really am. But back to the topic at hand. Why was I talking to a Bachelorette contestant? Because Michael, like myself, is a widow. I know people say widower, but I do not believe that you need a gendered term just for male widows. I think widow could be gender neutral. And so I say widow. And Michael's a widow and he's also a dad. He's got a little kid. And we had a really intense, very long conversation where we literally laughed and cried about what it meant for Michael to bring that lived experience of having loved deeply and lost his wife to one of the most popular reality dating shows in the history of the world. And since our conversation, Michael is now back on TV. He's back on the show Bachelor in Paradise, a show I have never seen in my life and never will. But I know from being alive and seeing things on the internet that it's controversial. It's controversial for Michael to be out there, out there dating, out there trying to figure out what he wants romantically in front of so many people every single week in a show that is obviously very edited. (laughs) 
So Michael's been getting some flack on Bachelor in Paradise for how he has been dating. Then again, not that I would really know what he's doing because I don't watch The Bachelor or Bachelor in Paradise, but this is the news that I'm getting from Jordan Turgeon, our resident project manager and Bachelor Nation fan, and from following Michael on social media and from just following so many people who are apparently following along with Bachelor in Paradise. Jordan's actually the reason we interviewed Michael in the first place. Somebody had told me, you should talk to Michael. You know, he's a widow. He's on on The Bachelor. And I was like, ah. And guess what? I'm so glad I listened to Jordan because I really, really loved this conversation because I know as a widow and I know as a person who has met literally thousands of widows, it is really, really hard to navigate romance after loss, to even entertain the idea of falling in love again when you've already had it once and it was so good and you didn't get to break up and and hate their guts. You just lost them. You just lost them. This is such a nuanced topic. There's nothing about it that is black and white and it's just it's just not something that can be easily discussed or assessed with with any sort of depth or nuance on a very highly curated um, slash manipulated reality show. My conversation with Michael is like a lot of conversations that I have had privately with other widows, and I'm sharing it here in hopes that it can be helpful for people who have lost a person they love and are maybe thinking about opening their heart again, or for people who know someone who have lost their loved one and maybe feel like kind of weird, uh, weird about it, feel weird about it. I get why you would feel weird about it. And I hope this conversation is helpful. And here it is. Before you lost Laura, what was your most intense grief experience? What did you expect from grief? What did you expect from widowhood? What did you think it would look like? I'm 37. And, you know, when Laura passed, I was 34. And prior to losing Laura, I think I fell into that same category as everyone else, where you can imagine what it's like to experience, you know, heartache and loss and all of that. I mean, we've all lost something in the past that we really cared about. And so you just put yourself in those shoes and imagine it heightened if it was a loved one or, you know, a parent or a child or a spouse, whatever. But it's so much more complex than that because that feeling feels isolated. It feels like an event. And really grief is this like complex array of ups and downs and mixed emotions and it's not linear whatsoever it just comes in its ebbs and flows and once you feel like you're over a certain era or a certain phase in the grieving process you have one of these days and it brings you right back to you know day one you know i did my grandpa's eulogy when I was 14 because, you know, my mother and my uncles and aunts, they just didn't want to do it. So I've always had this kind of relationship with a love of life and a celebration of death, especially when it happens to somebody else, you know, (laughs) like I missed my grandpa, but at the same time, like I didn't have the same memories as say my, my mother did uh, with her grandpa or my father. It's just a very 
different, odd, strange, complex scenario that unless you've really walked it and experienced it, you really can't feel the magnitude of the impact that it has on someone's life. Even post-Laura, I'm continuing to, to learn about it and discover things. It's not as though, you know, you lose someone, you go through it, and all of a sudden you become a, a master in it. Uh, you just try to figure it out in a way that makes sense for you because everyone's journey is so unique and different. I think the fascinating thing about universal experiences is that they're still entirely personal. And yeah. I had not seen grief up close. My grandparents obviously died and my mom cried at the funeral. Then what? You know, I thought that I was somehow defective because I would lay in bed at night and cry about my grandpa dying, you know, or or cry about my uncle dying. Her little brother died. And, you know, my cousin suddenly didn't have a dad. And that felt so frightening to me. We just didn't talk about it. We just didn't talk about it. And so I didn't see it up close. And so I assumed grief equals crying, right? So if you're not crying, right, if you're not crying, it must be over. Sadness equals crying. So if you're not crying, you're not sad. If somebody had brought this up to me when Aaron was sick, and I'm sure somebody did, and I just snapped, or I would have snapped had this happened, if somebody would have told me I was grieving at the point of diagnosis, I would have said, fuck off. No, I'm not. He's alive. I'm not. And what I can now look back at from 2011 to 2014 is that, yeah, of course, like, of course I was grieving. You know, of course I was grieving for the loss of our potentially normal adult life and all of the things that i thought you know would happen but i don't i didn't recognize it as grief and i don't think anybody else did either or at least nobody close to me was like this is a lot you're grieving a lot of stuff no it was like no we're just going to doing our best we're going to get through it yeah it's like grin and bear it and strength the way it's been defined in the past is literally pushing onward and a lot of times that is running away from these hard topics and, you know, these audits that you have to put into your life on a regular basis. For me, I didn't recognize this at first, but when Laura passed away, I mean, I was grieving the loss of my own life. Like it wasn't just this person, but it was, you know, 16 years of memories. And it's one of those things where like, Inside jokes no longer land with other people. You adopt their personalities, their habits. Like it becomes literally half of you when you've been together for so long. And then you're grieving the loss of this future that was planned out. You know, the you get the jobs and the house and the promotions and kids going to school. All of these things are working. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it's just gone. And so... You're trying to reconstruct pieces of yourself and also your future and how it could possibly resemble the image that you had in your head prior to the loss. You mentioned you become each other and that sort of shared history to not have somebody who is basically like your co-biographer, right? Like you 
have this huge impact on each other. Aaron and I were together for three years and he impacted my personality, my sense of humor. We had this shorthand. I just immediately, more than anybody I've ever dated, and I had previously been in a relationship for nine years. We had like 16 years of history. We met in college. And when something reminds you of something and you bring it back to a memory that you experienced in the past, and then you know it's totally relevant. And you just like your story, you bring it up to new people and they give you that awkward laugh, like they understand, but then real quickly you, you realize they were never there or know nothing about it. And you're like, well, I'm still going to tell it, goddammit. Like, I don't even care. It's not for you. <laughs> I remember just dating for the first time and like getting in the car and driving. And, you know, the first date I went on, it felt like an affair. Like I had to experience the drive. Like, I'm going to meet somebody. There is someone at the bar waiting to see me, and I'm going to see them. And, you know, I had to experience that because I can read all the books in the world. But if I don't experience it, then it's somebody else's, like, advice. I've always kind of had that rebel mentality, like, yeah, thanks for your advice, but that was your experience, not mine. And you know, that's really bitten me in the ass the majority of my life, but it's how I process things. And so it's like, I had to understand what that drive was like. I had to understand what it was like smelling different perfume or when those inside jokes didn't land or when someone touched me, even if it was casually on the shoulder, at first you're just like, you want to mace them. You go through all these processes and part of you is excited. Because it, it's fun to feel something when you're just so used to feeling like numb. And it's like, even pain feels okay. Because it's that numb feeling that really, you know, destroys us all the time and has us walking around like we're, we're zombies. But I, I do, I just, I just remember all of that. And, you know, I had to take those steps even if they were so uncomfortable, just because I had, I felt like I had to begin. I was tired of planning everything out and doing all these hypotheticals and trying to figure out if time, if enough time passed, then therefore I'm all of a sudden going to be ready for something. And I don't think time itself heals if you're not doing anything with your time and, and proactively working to make yourself better. It's it doesn't work on a clock like that. And actually it can make your situation worse because you can fall into a rut in depression. It's, it's a difficult thing. And I think the good thing for me, at least with what I'm equipped with is I love feeling uncomfortable. Like I don't mind that. I don't mind being scared. I'm a trial and error kind of person and way more errors than successes, but that long route, sometimes can bring you to your truth. So I want to talk about the process of like starting to date again and how that feels. I've been, I, I think I've told people like, you know, my story. I, I mean, I tried apps. Tell me about like trying apps. What do you put on your profile? Like, what does a first date feel like? And 
like, who do you tell? Because for me, the judgment was not just coming from outside the building. The call was coming from in here. Like you said, it felt like an affair. I felt like happiness was an affair. I felt like I fixed a part of our basement, right? And I was like, well, oh my God, Aaron will never see this. This is bad. You know, like I just, oh, I'm doing something he won't get to enjoy. Everything that I did that was truly just like what life is felt bad. But I also knew that people would be shitty about it. I think in the beginning, I mean, I'm 37. So I thought I missed all of the online dating. I think it's really an efficient way to do things. I mean, I think it's a little bit catty and, you know, things like that. A little bit material. Like, I, don't, I don't know, surface level. But at the same time, it's like you have all these people online putting their best foot forward, basically submitting their resumes saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. And so it's kind of a nice way to look at things versus approaching someone at a bar and they're like, no, I've got a boyfriend. You're like, oh, I'm a loser. And so I like built a profile and everything. I started doing it mainly because it wasn't as though I was looking to like get married and like replace Laura. It wasn't that. It was really like companionship. I think the companionship was really missing. I mean, Laura battled cancer really hard for two years. And I mean, that was the height of our intimacy. I mean, I, I really think a lot of times people, they run away from difficulty and they, and they want everything that's good, but it's really in the testing, trying moments, difficult moments where a real connection and intimacy like exists. And so throughout those two years, I was coming off this like height of just interconnectivity with Laura and, and everything. And then it just was like, oh, you're alone. And so, you know, I started, I started going on some dates. I kept it a secret from everybody just because, you know, they were grieving too. We were lucky enough to have so many people that were like close to us. I mean, Laura touched so many people that, I mean, even strangers felt like they knew her extremely well, that I was scared that they were looking at me and wondering, oh my God, is he going to be like that typical male statistic that, you know, gets married a year after his wife passes because, you know, he doesn't know how to do anything around the house and he's just useless. And, you know, going on those dates, it was really weird. I couldn't share it with anybody because they could act like they were happy for me, but I knew deep down that they were sad, um, that I was moving on or moving forward, I should say. We do feel that pressure. It is also like a pressure to stay where we are right? as yeah. And to be a museum to what was, to what we lost. And guess what? We are and other people come through those doors too. Like yes. we are, we are a museum of our lives. And there's something about that, that feeling from other people. And it's a, it's a fear, right? That if you are dating, is Laura not important anymore? Is what we shared as like a group of people loving the same person not important anymore? Is that irrelevant? And the answer is no, but I do understand that fear. I understand yeah. that fear. But what other people 
don't understand and what is so difficult to understand about all these facets of a loss, because you pointed out all these other people are also grieving Laura, right? Her friends, her family, your right. family, you know, her coworkers, your like anybody that she touched is that we're all experiencing it so differently. And for me, and I'm wondering if this was also similar for you, I experienced it as this abject loneliness that I had never felt before. Once Ralph was asleep, there's only so many times you can wipe the counters. Who wants to sit on the couch alone where you used to have a place, right? On the couch, like they they sit there, you sit here, you know where to put your legs, you know, like, and like, yes. now you're alone on the couch? No, I'm not going yeah. to bed alone in a bed that used to always have a person in it. There's just nothing. You walk into the house with your kid. There's no one to yell out to, right? There's no one to text and say like, are you getting milk or am I picking up dinner? Or there, it's just you, 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 yes. you. It's those like micro moments that unless you've walked, you know, in our shoes, you, you don't understand. They're not these events. They are living, breathing, ongoing. And it's so difficult for people who have lost somebody to even find the energy to take that first step towards creating happiness for themselves. We have to go through our own gruesome process, battling everything. And then there is also trying to find happiness within the boundaries and the pressures of this outside world that want us to do things in a certain way that makes sense for them. And when you step outside, out of line, out of this formula that they have created for us, then all of a sudden, they no longer look at you the same. And the guilt starts not becoming about Laura and losing a loved one for any of us, but it becomes, are we letting people down? Are we turning into somebody that we can no longer recognize when in fact, we're just trying to make sense of something that's really like unexplainable and it's so personal you know you brought up the couch thing like when laura passed like i adopted this really odd habit of sleeping across my bed yes like i yeah i started sleeping across it because it was laura's side and then it was my side and then it was like oh my god this bed is so empty that I just, I started sleeping across it and it was, did you do yes, that too? Yes, so bizarre. Like you literally- You were the first person I've ever heard that did that. Everyone's always like, you're odd. I couldn't man. even keep my head at the head of the bed. I could read that way. And then I'd like go to bed and be like, do, 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 like a sundial until I was yeah. like, yeah, I just had to, it, it could not feel the same. It could not feel the same. And I would go to bed by the way at like 3 a.m., two or three in the morning, like- yeah, I was writing a lot during that time because I did want to, I mean, I knew hopefully at some point in my life, I would be able to be better than I was in the current state. And so I did want to like capture all of these like emotions so that at one point I could look back and remember what it was like during like the very low times in your life. But there's also tons of like re really funny things that occur, you know, the, the shit people say, the awkward positions people put you in. I remember a handful of times, you know, a husband and wife, they would come up to me and be like, you know, so sorry to hear about Laura and everything, thoughts and prayers. And, you know, I'm like, thank you. I understand. Like, 
appreciate you acknowledging my just horrible sadness. And then the husband would always say, hey, man, I don't know how you do it. I don't think I could do that. And it would be right next to his wife. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, Jesus, Frank. <laughs> like she's right here. It's like, yeah, but if if she got gross and sick, I don't know. I don't know, dude. Yeah, right. What a hero. And, and at first I'd be like, in in the beginning, I was always like, you know, you'd be surprised what you're capable of, da da da. But then as it went on, I'd be like, Well, what would you do? You know, like tell walk walk me through how you would actually react to this. And you know, some of these people I'd be like, Yeah, you're right. Like you wouldn't have a chance. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's, you're not going to make it. Just acknowledge it. There's just so much like toxic positivity that's out there where people would just come up to you and say everything's going to be all right. And you're like, if everything was going to be all right, then why would I feel this shitty? I'm living and breathing it every day. Like you're basically just saying, yeah, I'm acknowledging it, but I really don't want to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear about it. And especially for me, that feeling was amplified by knowing I had a little kid. How old is James for all of this? So when Laura passed, he was uh, two. Okay. Same. Wow. 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 Yeah. Laura was diagnosed with breast cancer seven months after delivering James. So talk about a wave of emotion. I mean, first, pregnancy is not easy on the body whatsoever. Seven months after delivering James, he stopped taking breast milk from one side of the breast. And that set off an alarm, went to an OBGYN. And, you know, she dismissed it as a plug milk duck, which is common. But we were like, that's not good enough for us. We want to take a look inside and then quickly mammogram, ultrasound, biopsy, cancer, like three days later. And it was like, oh my God, brand new child fighting for our life. Oh my God, how the hell are we even going to do this? It's hard to even think about and remember the tempo of life because it's so fast. I don't know if I'll ever have that like tempo again, where you are just constantly running. I still attribute my close bond to James from her not being able to like go up and breastfeed. And that was something I was doing in the middle of the night. But by the time you go up there and like lay the baby on your chest and everything, you're like, I don't know why we don't fight over doing this. Like it's the greatest feeling in the world. And it was always that like mixed emotion where, you know, I'm, I'm holding James up in his bed, you know, and knowing that it's very likely that, it's just going to be us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as though you're giving up hope. Like we never gave up hope. It's just that you are just preparing yourself and you can feel tides shift during treatment too. One thing that I always regret is I never let Laura really talk to me about death because I had to keep her energized. I mean, she had other outlets for that, but, you know, my role was really, you know, make sure she stays positive and optimistic and motivated to do the next scan or treatment. There was a time when, I mean, I was probably planning to be a a widowed husband a year before she passed. 
I don't know, I, I was already starting to plan and think about how I was going to begin building my life. Yeah. It's like those moments where you're holding James. Oof. It's like, like I did all those things too. And it's like their presence was so Laura's, Aaron's, like so big, so real, so valuable. And also like just limited by the nature of that sickness too. And like, we're not heroes, <laughs> like, but it's no, like, not at all. But it's like bifurcating your reality, where it's like there's this one that you know is more likely, right? Which is like, it's me and James, baby, it's me and Ralph. And there's this other one that you're like, I want so badly to believe in. And I will, I will do everything I can to make sure it's the three of us. And uh, you just have to sort of like, you hope for the best while like knowing you will go through the worst version, the least desirable timeline. Yeah. I mean, just talking about that's like bringing me right back to those moments, which as painful as they are, there's there's some immense beauty in all of it. There is like that pace you were talking about. Like, you'll never have that again. <laughs> like just, you it know. Was insane. Yeah. I mean, we rang the bell. We went on two vacations because we got cancer-free diagnosis with James and everything. When you're going through it as a caregiver, there's always an event you're looking forward to. Even if it's a scary event, you know, a scan or a surgery or starting a new treatment or something. And it's like, just be present in the day, try to win the day. You know, you can't do everything and try to get them as happy and as comfortable as possible so that we can hit that like milestone or that benchmark. And it was just this crazy, crazy roller coaster. I remember thinking about and talking to Laura about through all of this, the gift that it has given us is it's made us realize that nothing is that important except for us, you know? All of these things that we really worry about and all of these like tasks and things that pile up on our desk, like those things just figure themselves out. There's also just these things that are outside of our control that are way beyond us. And we really started to appreciate each other more to be able to have something that we would miss this much. Ralph was almost to his 22 months when Aaron died. And I do think that kids have, like, they're just so observant. They know so much more than we think they do, especially little kids. And I think that boys like James and Ralph, who sort of grew up or like their formative, their baby years, right, were like really intense and they could read that, right? Like they get so much love because there's nothing that says hope like a baby, right? Nothing. <laughs> and they're also like not the center of the world for a family like ours. You know, it's like they're a part of it, but it's like, bud, there's a lot going on. You are a constellation. <laughs> like you are a, yeah. you are a part of something else. <laughs> and Yeah, you got to get on the bus. Like it's moving. I mean, tell me about this since you're farther along in our, I mean, our paths are somewhat, I mean, they're very similar. How have you discuss this with Ralph as time goes on, because I'm always trying to balance, you know, projecting my own emotions onto James, 
versus just allowing him to be a child and to like be happy and not steal moments away from him. And, but I also don't want things to go, you know, undiscussed or, or, or unaddressed. He's eight now. Um, and he's about to be nine and it's about to be seven years in two weeks. And I read somewhere that it takes widows about seven years to start to feel normal again. And this all connects, right? Like the time passage, I was concerned that like at one year it would expire, right? And in some ways I was right. People's empathy, compassion, just general interest in your in your loss almost dissolves completely after a year. Or if they see you doing anything normal, like going on a date or going on a vacation, being too happy, whatever it is, people are like, oh, I guess they're back. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. But time has been, in some ways, kind of felt like my enemy. Like it's pulling me further and further away from the reality of what was, even though the past is immutable, right? Like it's there. It's there no matter what. Like you don't actually have to do anything to preserve it aside from making sure that you go through their phone, you go through their computer, you save absolutely every text message that you can, (laughs) every photo, every voice. I don't have enough of his voice. It just wasn't something we were doing in 2014, 2012. Like, you know, the minute you turn on a camera phone, the vibe changes, right? And when someone's sick, they know that you're documenting them because they know you think, that they're going to die like and and that you're doing it to remember them and so so much of it is just in my head and Ralph is very sad that he doesn't have any of his own memories what i know from people who work with children who grieve is that milestones will sort of like amplify these losses and god dude michael you're just taking it out of me today um, I did, sorry i haven't cried in an interview in a while <laughs> That's not true, but you know, it feels like it. Um, so Ralph going to kindergarten, he got really emotional. And Ralph losing his teeth and birthdays in general. When he turned eight, he sobbed and said, like, I haven't had enough time to be seven and soon I'll be 10. And then I'll be, and this is, by the way, how I was as a kid too, just like dark. And then I'll be 30 and then I could die. Dad died when he was 35. Wow. Wow. So like yeah. the more they understand about the world, the more they'll understand about this. But mostly the way that Aaron shows up in our house and in our life is like really, really joyful. Like, you know, he loves Spider-Man because Papa loves Spider-Man. Our records are all mixed together. Like there's pictures of him on the wall. Aaron's parents are grandparents to all of our kids. And I feel very lucky for that. I know not everybody has that. And Aaron's sister will take you know, Ralph, but she'll also take our baby. She'll also take our teenagers. Like it just sort of was this expansion of what family is. And I think for Ralph, that's been really helpful. And I think, you know, even for the big kids, you know, they've experienced loss too, right? They're children of divorce. So as much as they can experience that love is bigger than we think it is, I think that's good. But it's uh, it's hard there's a part of it where I feel like kids have a almost an intuition and an intelligence that they're able to understand this better than most adults can. I just want to make sure that I can, you know, be a resource to him and like keep those pathways of communication open 
so that he doesn't have to bottle them up and they find a way of resurfacing in a relationship or the way he pursues life with zest and excitement and enthusiasm, which I'm trying to raise somebody like that. One thing I did give James, I gave a gift to James, Laura, and me for uh, Christmas. This is about, you know, about a month and a half before she passed. And I actually carry this everywhere. It's this uh, brass compass and it's got her, our family's initials on it. And on the inside, it actually says, I'll find you wherever you are. And, you know, I was able to give that to, you know, James and, and Laura. And I keep it with me all the time because it's kind of this reminder that they are always kind of present, even if you can't see them, but you can find them. How old is James now? He's five. He's five. Okay. Yeah. And does he talk a lot about Laura or does he ask about her or what's his relationship with Laura? I mean, Laura's family, they're my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. They're very much a part of our life and like will forever be. I don't know how I could have done any of this without having them active in my life and my family and all of that. But I always wanted to keep them so close. I mean, one, it's the right thing to do. But two, it's like they will always be able to tell stories about their child to James. And it's it's like I'm trying to always build this network. Like if I miss it, maybe somebody else will pick up on it and catch it because like there's nothing more important than James, you know, in my world. And it's like if I, if I come up short, I know they will definitely remind him of, of her. And so I feel as though I'm typically bringing it up to James at this point, like, oh, your mommy loved this. Like, look at this picture. You were so cute when you were there. She loved you, you know, so much. And you laugh just like her, like stuff like that. But he, I, I don't find that he proactively is asking me about it. And I, I do think it's painful for him. And I do think he recognizes when he goes and sees other people at school that, you know, there's a daddy and a mommy and a baby, you know, and a kid. And what we have under this roof is looks different. And so I'm always focused more on that, that, you know, a family can look any way and be anything. And it doesn't have to be exactly that way in order for it to be a family. Yeah. Something that really comforted me was a Pew Research study that said that there is no standard family unit anymore. There's not. Whatever we think of as an average family is actually an exception. (laughs) And most families are cobbled together and just look different than what we grew up thinking of as a standard family. I want to talk about, like, once you start going on some dates, like what is the reaction that you get from other people? Like you already said to you, it felt like it felt like an affair, but also part of it for me was that like the guilt was like, there is more life for me. Like there's more life for me and only me. Anybody who met both me and Aaron would be like, Aaron's the better one. <laughs> like, right. Hands down. No one was picking me first. No one. And you know, moving forward, living again would mean having experiences that 
he could never participate in. And there's just something about that for me. Watching even his friends get older has been hard for me. You know, watching his his friends or colleagues get promotions that he would have eventually gotten or have additional children. There's just something about truly watching time march on that was really, really difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think what motivated me early on for moving forward with my life was sometimes I think Laura, by showing me how to die, she kind of taught me how to live a little bit. It put things into perspective on how much people are fighting for every second. I mean, nobody wants to go. You go to any hospice and they're in their worst condition and they're still fighting. And so part of it was like obligation out of James. I wasn't going to let cancer take more than what it had already taken. It had already taken my love, my future, James's mother. I wasn't going to let it take James's father too. And so I started actually, the rebel in me is like, you know, screw cancer. I'm not going to just be on the defensive. I'm going on the offense. Like I'm going to be proactive in getting this. Um, I'm tired of like being in the corner and getting punched. And so, you know, I started going out, like doing the dates and everything. And I noticed that, and whether people want to believe this in, or not, I believe this to be true from my own experience. There are a handful of people, I don't know what it is about them, but they preferred me sad. They just preferred me sad. They liked the idea of this, like, forever love, this martyrdom. They liked the idea that, you know, I was there through the whole thing. And then when she passed, you know, and when I spoke about her, it was like a love story for them and them personally. And then they would always talk about, you know, I hope the best for you, you know, supportive. But when they actually saw what that looked like, they criticized it. It's too difficult trying to find happiness alone and like finding that energy by yourself after everything, nonetheless, have to feel this like judgment and pressure from other people that you have to do it their way. And they're not the ones that see us laying across the bed. When James goes to bed at 8.30, every single night, I am by myself. I am scrubbing the countertops until they're basically, you know, bald. All the while, they're very much affected by it, but they can they can walk away from it. They can turn it off. They can go on with their life. And it's only when I started finding happiness and building the next chapter that it almost triggered and reminded them of what was lost. And so they didn't like that uncomfortable feeling. They didn't like the idea that there may be something else for me. It's in their mind, it's somehow diluted like the beautiful thing Laura and I had built throughout 16 years. The widower has to go through their own education process and self-discovery. 
those people really need to know like what it is they're doing. And there's this old quote that you honor the fallen by loving their widow unconditionally, no matter what they do. James and I were Laura's favorite thing on earth. And the fact that there are certain people that are now judging us, they have to remember that Laura would be furious at that. So who are you really serving at that point, no matter how you justify anything? Like the person you're supposedly remembering and grieving and all of that, you're literally attacking and making the lives of her two most like treasured things more difficult. People want to believe that they are so irreplaceable that should anything happen to them, the person who loves them would never love again, right? And the fact is, they are irreplaceable. Laura is irreplaceable. Aaron is irreplaceable. And there is nothing about falling in love again that is in competition with what was at all. But it's it's this insecurity. And you know how I know that, Michael? Because I felt that and I projected that on other people because I had not yet been there. I had not yet been there. And at some point, like that is a part of life is opening yourself up to the pain of loving again, because the truth, the absolute fact of any love that you share for a person, a uh, relationship, a passion of yours to open yourself up to love is to open yourself up to a guarantee of loss at some point. It is not cowardice. It is not you running for, for comfort or for a palliative. It is you braving something. Being sad is so easy. Being happy is difficult. Like that's really what's difficult because the sadness, we don't need reminded of why we should be sad, but we need to rediscover like why we should be happy throughout all of it. And that takes a lot of courage. (laughs) And for the people that have lost somebody, it's difficult for them, even if they're making it look easier than it is, it's difficult. And, you know, for those that are casting judgment or saying, you know, it's too soon, or he still refers to Laura as his wife. She is my wife. We didn't get divorced. Like we would still be together had this not entered into our life. And it doesn't mean that the next relationship I get into can't be unique and it can't have its own inside jokes and memories that we share and all of the things that Laura and I had, but different, like ours. That's all very possible. And it doesn't have to be this comparison type of thing. Like Laura would never have done this. How dare you? I look for people that have scars. Like I have to know that you have been through some shit And you have been able to rise above it, or even if you're still struggling it, you understand like pain. You're not out here creating your own problems. You're not overreacting to things that are so not important. Like you, you have perspective. 
Lori and I had an amazing dating life, like together, had an awesome marriage. Was it perfect? No, not at all. But it was wonderful. Like, it was great. Like, I would do it a million times. It was real. And, you know, Laura and I would always have these conversations about, you know, this concept of, like, soulmate or one person out there for you. You know, she would always slap me for saying this. But I was like, you know, we met at Loyola in Chicago. You know, she was a senior in high school uh, and I was a freshman in college. She was on a college visit. Like I saw her, we started talking, she decided to come to Loyola and then I locked it up. Did you get a commission on the, her tuition? You should have. I mean, I, I, I should. I mean, Laura was crazy smart. She ended up getting her MBA from Notre Dame Mendoza, Mendoza School. She was the second woman in Notre Dame's history to be president of her MBA school, like Notre Dame's history too. Like she was a brilliant human being. And then like, we would always have these conversations. Like if she had not been on that college visit, if I had not chosen to go to Loyola, if we had not discussed, does that all of, all of a sudden mean that I'm going to be unhappy the rest of my life that I would never would have found somebody? And it's not true. It just isn't true. I think everybody is very much capable of being loved or being a good person in a relationship. You know, a lot of it has to do with timing and where you are and your openness to allowing something to work. You know, there's there's compatibility issues, but at the same time, like I'm somebody that is literally happiness matters to me. Life, I value. I get excited about the dumbest shit. Like it makes me excited. And so, you know, I'm out there trying to to find it like again i know i know what it feels like to be married and to be happy and to have that i don't i don't know um that companion and that partner and that ally and then somehow people want to judge me if i go out and, and, and try to find that again and, and i don't really care well to me there's no bigger compliment to the marriage that you had with laura than to say, oh, I'd do that again. Right. Because what's the op- What's the opposite? Saying, never again. Never again. That sucked. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> yeah. So, it's like, it's honestly kind of rude. Ugh. It's like, yeah, being like, Ugh. oh, no, sorry. I'm, you want me to love a person who could die or disappoint me in some way? Hell no. No, I'm better off on my own. No, man, I want that. I want that back. It's wonderful. It's great. I had not really had time or space to experience grief until I met Matthew and he was so steady. He was so steady because he had been through something and he had taken the time with it. He had like examined it. He was good with it. You know, I knew from the minute we talked like this man has survived something and it wasn't like a cross that he bared. It was part of his life. He just folded it in and he did not feel bad for me. He didn't look at me as someone who needed fixing or who needed protection. He was there and he witnessed so much of my grief because we met almost a year after Aaron died. I was so stressed out. I don't know what like coming up on the year, year marks, like I just feel it in my body and I was so tense, couldn't like even turn my head. 
and he like walked in the backyard and I was like, oh, and I'm going to have to pretend to care about a person when I just want to talk to my friend. And he fell out of his chair and it was so funny. And he literally sat and just listened for like four hours. He just was there. He was like listening. He was just like actively listening. And finally, I was like, what's your deal? Like, is your wife dead? And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. And I was so fascinated by his story because truly I was like, you're divorced. She stopped loving you. Oh, my God. That would hurt so bad. (laughs) That would be. And he was like, wow, yeah, no one ever said that to me in that way. But I was like, no, literally, like she looked at you and was like, no more. Like, just I'd take it all back. That would suck so bad. Like, and also when people like, especially when you're widowed and someone's like, yeah, I just like hate my husband. You're like, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, you hate That's him? That's nice you have one. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a husband to hate. Man, it's just like, read the room. Read the room. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. But at the same time, it's like, I, I don't want to like build these walls around me where I'm unapproachable. Um, and, and, you know, people always like, like when they have something sad, they always like, it's nothing like what you went through. Like we're in a contest of who can be the saddest or have the saddest thing. That's such a good point to you because also one of the things that felt lonely for me in especially early widowhood, that's the disclaimer of all disclaimers that I I want to condition people against, right? Which is anytime someone comes on this show, Michael, the first thing they do is they're like, well, you know, so it doesn't compare to this, this or this. And I guess it's not that bad. And it's like, dude, it's like the show is about emotional honesty for all of life's experience, not about trying to benchmark them against each other. And part of my loneliness was realizing people I loved weren't telling me things about their life anymore. That hits home. Um, in a lot of ways, there's the idea that these people that, you know, you used to be a sounding board for now, they don't want to add any other burdens or now they're protective of you. But I understand the motivation behind doing that. But at the same time, it puts people like us on an island alone, where honestly, it's, it's nice to know that other people have problems too. It's nice to know you're not alone in this like pit of despair. And it's not like you're happy that other people are hurting, but you want to regain like that perspective that you still have value and you can still offer something as a friend or as a sibling or as a child to other people that are going through it because you lost a lot of yourself after your spouse passed away. And I also want to participate in other people's joy, too. And I think what hurt a lot for me was people hiding the good things in their life, too. You know, not wanting to tell me they were, you know, having a second baby or, you know, all these things because they didn't want me to feel bad. And it's like, oh, and I would like I did cry privately after I found out one of my good friends was pregnant. But I also cried because I was like, oh, she felt like I wouldn't be happy for her. You know, and that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I am. I am happy for you. And I'm sad for me. And both of those things can be exist in the same. They can coexist and they do. I remember how annoying it was like, you know, when you get that energy to have a good day and you're like, maybe I'm going to go see some friends. And then you walk into the room and it's like, oh, you can feel the energy shift. Like they're watching a game. Then all of a sudden it's like, uh, the guy's here. Everyone be sad. <laughs> like I literally just want to enjoy like some queso and crudite, 
throw some beers back and like feel like myself again. Like we don't have to do this thing where we all like get really sad for a certain amount of time and then we jump back into it. Like, let's just be friends. I needed like a mood meter for everyone to know because like sometimes the thing is like I did want people to read my mind, you know, and I did want people to understand that. I don't know, just but also like my moods, my experiences were so unpredictable that, yeah, sometimes I would fully plan on coming over for queso and then on my way over would be like, honestly, there's no way I can be around this person and her handsome, alive husband. And then sometimes I would be like, that's all I want, right? I want to come over. I do want to watch Real Housewives and I want everyone to laugh and like no one bring it up. If I want to bring it up, I'll bring it up. And it's like, it's such an impossible balance for everyone, everyone involved. It's such an impossible balance. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. If they don't bring it up, that means like they've forgotten. If they do bring it up, it's like, oh my God, like, can I just have a second without being reminded of this? I still have difficulty saying things correctly, even though I know my own experience and everything and what I liked to hear. I don't say like sending thoughts and prayers. I don't do that stuff. But, you know, I try to constantly like check in and not with the how are you doing, but real like specific things that they could answer. And typically phone calls more than texts because texts feel like a, a chore sometimes when they pile up. It's also trying to like proactively know what they're going to need before they ask for it. Because everyone's experience is so unique and some people will want to claw your eyes out if you say everything happens for a reason or God has a plan. And for some people, that's what they need to hear. And it's like, we are all these, you know, really complicated puzzles and we're still trying to figure ourselves out. And it's difficult. And it has given me a lot more compassion for people who are sort of like on the outer rings. And also, sometimes I just wanted to like exist. For that reason, I built a lot of new relationships in widowhood so that I could have conversations with people who are not burdened by knowing everything about me. I have realized now at this phase, at almost seven years in, like I have to do a lot more embracing of the life that I am in now. And Aaron is a part of that. Laura shows up every day in James's face. I know you feel this way, right? Like there's just certain things that they do where you're like, how could you possibly know how to do that? Right, right. One thing I'm always having challenges with is taking things off of my plate. There's a lot of things I'm, I'm doing. And it's like, I think early on, going back to like that tempo of going through cancer and having a child and running around and that tempo I was very much used to. And so I, I did, I took on and continue to take on all of these things, whether they're philanthropic or they're, you know, uh, support driven and, and helping people grieve or like all of these things and work and coaching James's T-ball. And it's like, I need to really just organize my life and I need to create like my priorities, because I feel like, you know, I'm giving a lot of myself to a lot of different things. And then for the things I actually really care about, there's less and less of me to give to that. 
you know, and that's a harsh reality to come by because you do, oh, I can handle it. You know, I can make this work. I can do this if I just wake up an hour earlier, go to bed later or, you know, just more efficient, but it's not a good quality of life. And it, I have been able to feel it impact me and my mood and my energy. And, you know, the last thing I want is for the things I care about most to kind of fall through the cracks because I'm busy doing things that matter, but not as much. There's so much to this. And one is that there are certain things that people do that are nearly reflexive that I've noticed in in now like seven years of talking to literally thousands of people that are almost reflexive after a huge loss, after a huge tragedy. And one is that because you are filled with so much gratitude for the things that people did for you, the things you had, the ways that you were held or connected, and some also resentment for the ways that you were not, and a, a desire to sort of right that cosmic injustice, we push, we pour ourselves into, what can I do to help another person? What can I do? What can I do? And it's trying to alchemize like, okay, so Laura died, Aaron died, but, 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 I can do something good with this, right? I can make something beautiful out of this, and you can, you are, you will, and for listeners, whether or not you create something, start something, promote something, do some sort of like tangible, your existence is enough. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. It feels like it will never be enough. It feels like it will never be enough. And a part of that too is like, I have a friend currently whose entire life is falling apart, right? Like every time we talk, she's like, I'm so sorry. It's just like things are getting worse. And I'm like, dude, I remember this phase, right? Like someone would call and be like, how are you? And you'd be like, well, uh, oh, well, turns out this thing is happening. And, you know, she mentioned, she was like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to live at not an 11, you know, because for so long from like the minute James was at, was seven months old, like your life was like the highest stress levels, the highest joy levels, the highest sorrow levels, everything is just so amplified. And like, I've had a hell of a time and I've done more in the past year than I have in the six years prior. I've had a hard time just existing without making it a run, right? A sprint, a, a, like while juggling like six glass balls on top of a pogo stick. Is this a common thing? I mean, it, you've spoken to so many people and I, I guess I really haven't heard it in this way. And it's so accurate. I mean, it's that heightened emotion and that when you feel like you're not doing something, you know, extraordinary or even just purposeful or with intent, that it feels less. It really shouldn't. I haven't, I've never heard it the way you just described it and I keep yeah. going. I don't know. Everyone wants to do something like everyone wants to do something extraordinary. I get so many messages and I'm sure you do too. I'm going through the same thing as you. And I want to make sure that I do this to help somebody. I want to make sure that I do that. And I'm like, yes. And like right now, your only responsibility is to exist, is to figure out like how to live this life you did not choose in the shape you didn't choose. And it is sort of this conflation of doing with being, right? Or doing with our value. And because we can dress it up and we do mean it, I do think we all mean it well, right? I'm doing this thing altruistically. And that altruism helps us also not feel like the depth of our loss 
And it does give us, I think, something to sort of like work towards. And like, you just can't live like that forever. You just can't. But I think it's a beautiful human trait, right? That when something happens to us, we want to reach out. We want to reach out. It takes a lot of discipline to be able to step away from being so, I guess, reactive and jumping into all of these things where you want to help others and share and turn tragedy into triumph. And you're disciplined enough to know that there will be a time for that. But for right now, like your only goal is to just exist. Just exist. And that's, and that's okay too. I think that's brilliant. I think if I would have you know, had this conversation two years ago, I would have nodded my head and it wouldn't have made sense. I know. Me neither. I would have been like, fuck off. Like, yeah. I would have been like, yeah, I mean, sure. Those are nice words. Like it makes sense to me, but going through everything now, it's again, like what you just said is landing at a very important time in my life where I'm actually open to receiving and understand what the alternative looks like. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, I had to learn this hard. I had to learn this hard and painfully and by like, you know, lopping off my limbs until I was the stump in the giving tree. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not a Brookstone poster. You know, you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't get these like tidbits and knowledge and understanding from a, a Brookstone poster. Like you have to live it. You have to live it. You have to live it and you have to experience it. And it is okay to not do anything. There's nothing else to sort of sacrifice at the altar. Like your existence is enough. And that is enough of a way to honor Laura and James and what you have and what you had. And when people reach out to me and they're like, what do I do? I'm like, go live, go live your life. And you do not need to do anything bigger or more magical. Like the way that you honor, like I loved what you said, like you love their widow. It's like, you love yourself. Because to me, Michael, I'm, I don't want to project too much onto other people, although it is my favorite hobby. Like for me, that was a way, everything that I did, like it made me feel better about having survived. It made me feel like, okay, well, you know, Aaron deserves to be alive. I don't. Like if it's a comparison, <laughs> like he was better than me. So this is how I earn my spot on this planet. This is the rent that I pay to exist is, well, at least I'm doing all these things, right? Like, this is how I know I'm worth existing. And it sucks. You don't have to yeah. do anything. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? I'm having a little breakthrough moment here. I always felt, and maybe I'll probably continue to feel that if you experience something tragic or something eventful and meaningful, that there's a sense of like obligation that exists to I don't know, give back. You know, I, I grew up in Catholic and stuff. So that guilt is just everywhere, <laughs> you know? So it, it's almost like feeling guilty ever receiving and it's always giving. And But I don't know if that's necessarily healthy. It probably isn't when you are giving of yourself when, you know, there's very little to give when you strip it all down. I imagine people listening to this. It just, I don't know what I'm saying other than uh, I just, I feel you. And especially in those, like, that's truly how I spent the past up until February of this year. I wasn't doing anything well. I just was like reacting to things and trying so hard to be like, it was like everything was paying a penance for something, right? There's a, almost like, this is how I earn the fact that like people know me 
because widowhood or loss or whatever is so universal, there are some people who are like, well, okay, well, what makes you so special, right? Like no one gave me that much attention when my husband died or like, oh, sorry that you're, you're famous. You're getting rich off this. Like, I mean, take a look at my closet. Am I? Am I, Michael? I'm, I'm calling you from a closet, right? Like you're getting rich off of this. I have to prove also, by the way, doing all these things and never paying myself, never paying myself for any of them. Um, so just doing three unpaid full-time jobs on top of one another. It's crazy. Like I, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing that with the L4 project. People are like, oh, you're profiting off of tragedy. I'm like, oh, you are a monster. Like you have no idea that I actually have a normal job during the day. And then when James goes to bed, that's when I start doing all this stuff for free, coming out of pocket for all of these things. And what, just because it's getting attention, which has been my goal too, so that people know about it. Like you're mad at me and you think that somehow it's like a profiting thing. Like, And the thing is, too, it's like there are people making a profit off like our oceans boiling. It's called the Koch brothers. So look up a real villain and uh, and like just aim that anger a little yeah, bit higher. Re- but, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it ain't it ain't here, babe. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Your, your enemy is not like a person who is bringing into the light this experience that exists only in the dark. And I imagine that like you got a certain kind of feedback from being on The Bachelor. Yeah, no, no. It's I mean, the interesting part about the conversation with The Bachelor also has to do with some of the topics that we already covered, which is, you know, pursuing life post this and becoming yourself again kind of deal. You know, Laura passed away in January of 2019. I spent that whole year kind of like getting back to grips with, you know, being alone. And then towards the end of 2019, I started like feeling like I was ready to start doing something. Then like 2020 hit and it was like, no, seriously, bro, like you are alone. (laughs) Like COVID hit, everything was kind of wiped off. And, you know, it was just this wild time where I just kept getting like beat down. Um, I mean, last four years, just so difficult. And so at the end of January, 2021, um, I was on Instagram and somebody came into my DMs and said, would you like to be on a show? I'm like, what show? They said, you know, The Bachelorette. And I was like, you know, are you lost? Like I'm 37, you know, like, is this really what you're trying to get here? Um, and then they, I was like, send me the paperwork because I would just want to see what, always get the paperwork, you know, no matter what, whether it's the show or something else, always take the meeting, always get the paperwork. So I didn't apply to the show. I wasn't nominated. I didn't do anything. I didn't seek it out. They actually found me um, online because one of the casting directors, her husband, he made an application for nonprofits. And because of the L4 project, I came up with someone that you know, they should know. And so, you know, I was going back and forth, like, is this really who I am? Is this really what I want to do? I have a son. Is this what I want him to see? Who knows going on here? I'm going to be away from him. I was literally giving myself every reason to say no. And I actually told them no twice during this process, Um, just because it's not 
I never envisioned this. It was not part of the plan. And then I started thinking about like signs and stuff, among other things. But Laura absolutely loved The Bachelor. It was her favorite show. And she would often joke that, you know, we that her and I should get a divorce and that I should go on the show. She was like, you'll go so far, like, you know how to talk and like be nice to women and like these people are mean and all this stuff. And then like, you know, get eliminated and just come back to me. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for like these signs. And this one just felt so obvious that I knew that if I said no to it, even as uncomfortable as it was, that I would literally be like burdened by that. What if, because it was so random, it just came out of nowhere. I couldn't help but associate a little bit, if not all of it, to her saying, well, you're getting called up to the to the show. Like, go do it. Let's see what you can do. One of the things that I think is super powerful about you doing that is one, again, people don't see what this experience is like, right? They don't see what this is this experience is like. And we expect love to be two unencumbered people with literally no baggage finding each other. And uh, or to just hide that right to pretend like you have you have no prior experiences. This is what this is what honestly shows like this are sort of predicated on. Right. Or or the idea of like there's the one is like, well, because nothing else mattered until I found you when really like it all matters. All of our experiences matter like they matter deeply. This is like how we become who we are is through all of this. And so to to go on something like this is one like reality is always, you know, uh, we, we say that like reality TV in quotes, right? But I do think like it's such a generous thing to do because you're giving people like a view into this experience who normally wouldn't, right? It's like, it's actually, it may be not that rare, but most people don't know a person who was widowed when they were, you know, under 50, <laughs> like let alone under 40. And I, I'm wondering about like the feedback that you got from being on that show. I mean, as, as you know, say you get 10 comments, nine of them could be great. And then the one is the negative comment is like the only one you focus on, right? And then, you know, for the most part, when I was going through the show and once I got back, you know, my DMs were really filled with widowers, people that were grieving, cancer survivors, people who had been divorced felt like they couldn't love again, you know, single parents that were talking to me about the difficulties of actually going out and dating after their kid goes to bed at 830 and they don't want to sneak people in and out of their house because it's not time for their kids to meet this person. you like, it's a very complicated logistical issue dating when you're a single parent outside of everything else. And so, you know, a lot of those messages, they did feel like they were connecting with people and that people did, they were able to kind of share in, you know, my pain, but also begin kind of looking forward in their own life in one way or the other. And I felt purpose through that. I felt like there was some meaning, like I felt like, like I had something to say um, and people were willing to listen to it. So like, for that, I absolutely loved it. And then for like those one comments that are scattered in and out, it's, it's really mean sometimes what people say, but that's okay. Like, are you going on the show? Like you better have thick skin. 
And, you know, people would literally, you know, say worst dad ever, like went away for two months and abandoned his child after his mom died. And he's not over Laura because he still calls her his wife. Yeah. And you're not over Laura, weirdly, because you're not supposed to be. And I won't be, you know, and, you know, getting unsolicited parenting advice from, you know, 18 to, you know, 30 year olds that have never been married, never had kids, like never lost anybody. Like I always have to take a step back. And before I like react with rage and fury, I have to remember that hopefully they never have to understand this. Yeah. Hopefully you never have to understand. Like, I hope that you can live in this, I guess, protected life and have this just ignorant opinion, because that means you haven't had to like suffer through the pain of actually walking, you know, miles in our shoes. And so it's like, I always kind of take a step back before I want to just like lash out and teach them a lesson that it's not my lesson to teach. It's, it's for them to learn. And I hope they're protected from it. Oh yeah. I hope you never understand. As always, this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. And I am Nora McInerney. This show is now an independent production by our company, Feelings & Co. Our producer is Marcel Malikibu. Our senior producer is Marcel Malikibu. Senior producer. Our associate producer is Megan Palmer. And we love her. She's doing such a good job. Yay, Megan. Our project manager is Jordan Turgeon. And our sound engineer is Eugene Kidd. Other members of our team who contribute in various ways include Claire McInerney and Larissa Witcher. Also, sometimes my husband, Matthew Hart, pitches in, not on the podcast itself, but on all the many other things that go into it, like remembering to invoice, remembering to pay invoices. A lot of admin. He's doing a lot of admin. He brings me lunch. This episode was recorded in my closet, but the beginning part you heard and the credits, those were recorded not in the closet, which is why you can hear possibly the dog barking in the background, definitely a lawnmower in the background. I just didn't want to sit in the closet today, okay? I hope you forgive me. If you want to um, support our show, you can go to ttfa.org premium. The URL will say something uh, about the company that we used to be a part of. We just can't change that URL. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me why. We just can't do it. I think that's it. I always say, I think that's it, as though anyone cares, as though there's anyone else in this room. There's not. Thank you, guys. I love this job. I love doing this with you and for you. So bye.